Um, we're reading from John 15. Um, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I have also remained in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that was thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burnt. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Thanks, Megan. This is a passage that I'm guessing most people in the room will be incredibly familiar with. Or at least if we don't know the passage well, we will have come across the vine and branches imagery before. It's an image we love as Christians. We use it in pictures. We use it everywhere because it allows us to talk about having our roots in Jesus. It challenges us to be fruitful whatever that means and for some it allows them to talk about judgment that will come for not being in Christ but how often do we really study it as I've worked on it this week I've discovered all sorts of truths that I didn't realize were there um, all untold uses of this passage that are simply not there and a realization that I can't remember ever really listening to what Jesus is actually saying here. I've learned so much that I'm not going to be able to cover every part of this passage in detail. Some parts will only be touched on very briefly, I'm afraid. But my first draft of this sermon was about 45 minutes long, so I had to prune a little. (laughs) Thank you, Mervyn. But my hope tonight is that even with that pruning, you will, like I have this week, hear something new or at least afresh as we look at this passage together. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we do pray that as we look at a familiar image tonight, you will have our eyes open to hear and to see um, the truth of your words, either afresh or for the first time. 
Father, be at work in our hearts, molding us and shaping us to be more like Jesus. Amen. So why did Jesus use the image of the vine? And why now, in the middle of what is actually a long section of teaching and prayer in John? Do you know it must be me? I did this to the to a microphone this morning. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He's washed their feet. He's sent Judas out into the night. He's predicted Peter's denial. And then he gives them what will be his last section of teaching, largely about the Holy Spirit. And then he prays for them and for us. We might not use this microphone. Okay, let's try this. Um, But if you read from the beginning of John 14 all the way through to the end of chapter 17 in one go, this image of the vine and branches just appears at first glance to come out of nowhere. It just doesn't seem to flow with the rest of what Jesus is saying. But that's not how Jesus works. He says nothing for no reason. So it must be there for a reason. The first hint that something else is going on is actually in the very last sentence of chapter 14. Because Jesus says, come now, let us leave. You see, we imagine that all that talking from chapter 13 right through to chapter 17 all happens in the upper room. In fact, I have books on my bookshelf that tell me that. But it doesn't. Between chapter 14 and 15, there's a break, however brief, as Jesus and the disciples leave the room and walk towards Gethsemane. As they walk, Jesus starts talking about the vine. It's possible that their walk took them past vineyards and seeing the vineyards, the vines perhaps picking a grape or two as they walked, triggered this image in Jesus' mind and and using, as he often did, he taught them something, uh, f- uh, something new about the kingdom from what they could see around them. Or perhaps, and based on what Jesus has to say, I think more likely they walked past the temple on their way to Gethsemane. Because on the front of the temple there was a huge golden vine adorned with large bunches of golden grapes. And much as um, people used to pay for stained glass windows or we would put put up plaques now, you could pay to add a grape or if you were terribly important and rich, even a whole bunch to the vine. It was an incredibly important symbol because the vine, or more accurately a vineyard, represented the nation of Israel. It was a key Old Testament image for the people of God. The image appears all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 5, for example, where he says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. 
God planted Israel as his beloved vineyard. He cared for them. He nurtured them. And he provided everything they needed to produce a good crop of fruit. But Israel did not live up to God's expectations and did not provide God with a good crop. And so time and time again, the the prophets warn that God will remove his protection over the vineyard and it will be destroyed. In fact, that's exactly what Isaiah goes on to say in that chapter. Jesus himself uses this imagery to speak of Israel in the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21. The tenants are the political and religious leaders of Israel who deny God as the landowner, the harvest he is due, and in fact kill his son. Israel still saw themselves as the vineyard of the Lord, and the vine on the temple reminded them of that. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, he's saying, forget this image on the temple. I'm the true Israel. I'm the one all the promises to God's people are focused on. God's blessing, God's nurture, his care, his delight, it's all found in me not in the nation of Israel. But why now? Why on this night? Why not any of the other times Jesus and his disciples had been at the temple? What was it about this moment on the way to Gethsemane that made the imagery important? Well, to see that, we have to look around this passage to what came before and what will follow. If you listen with the disciples' ears to this long section of John's Gospel, it's not overly cheery stuff. Yes, there's lots about the Holy Spirit and how he will help, comfort, and encourage the disciples. But I'm sure in the moment, that's not what the disciples focused on. I'm sure the immediate take-home for the disciples from chapter 14 was that Jesus was leaving them. Not that he would send the Holy Spirit. And while eventually they would remember that the suffering he warns them about in chapter 15 was inevitable and no surprise to God, and all of that that goes with that, I'm certain what they would have heard on the way to Gethsemane was that the world hated them. Jesus was leaving, and the world hated them. That is some pep talk. But right in the middle of this, Jesus says, but there's a way to survive this. No, not just survive. I am going, and the world does hate you, but I can tell you how to thrive in the midst of that. Just hang in there. And even though I'm not with you physically, you will be fruitful. You can have complete joy. In the midst of what sounds like very bad news... Jesus drops a nugget of gold, a sparkling gem of truth to lift their spirits, to encourage them, to give them hope and to confirm their purpose and our purpose. What's their purpose and ours? Well, if you've got your Bible open, it's up on the screen. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. What's our purpose? Fruit that will last and effective prayer.
fruit that will last, and effective prayer. I think the second flows out of the first, and I'm going to explain how later. But hands up, who would like the assurance that God would give them everything they asked for? There's lots of people with their hand down. Don't lie. (laughs) Who would like to be certain that when they asked for healing, the sick would be made well? Who would like to know without a shadow of a doubt that when they asked for God's guidance, the answer would be clear and certain? Well, you're going to have to believe me for a bit longer that this flows out of fruitfulness, but I promise I will explain it. But first, let's think, what does fruitfulness look like? Well, the easy answer can be found in verse 8. The disciples would have seen it much more clearly than we do at first, but I promise you it's all there. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Bear much fruit. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. You see, the disciples would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. They were disciples. The world they lived in was full of disciples. It's not a word we made up to describe them. A disciple was a pupil, a student of a rabbi usually. The Pharisees counted themselves as disciples of Moses, and each of them would have had their own disciples. In first century Israel, a boy's formal education would stop at 13. And after that, if he wanted further teaching or perhaps he wanted to prepare to be a judge or a scribe or a teacher himself, he would seek to study as a disciple of a rabbi. Paul, for example, left home in Tarsus to study under a famous rabbi in Jerusalem called Gamaliel. Now, certain things were required of disciples. Firstly, total submission to the rabbi's interpretation of Scripture. They could debate, they could question, but ultimately, the rabbi had authority in scriptural matters. And secondly, all of a disciple's daily life was observable and open to scrutiny by the rabbi. They would give guidance or discipline when needed, which should be heeded without question. Now, part of the reason that was important was that the rabbi would want people to know they had disciples, that these young men saw them as having authority in Scripture, and so the disciples' lives needed to reflect well on the rabbi. But how did you know which rabbi a disciple followed? Well, they would observe and study their rabbi and then imitate them. They would study how they ate, how they observed the Sabbath, for example. They would copy their mannerisms, their prejudices, their preferences. They would become such good copies of their rabbi that people could easily tell whose disciples they were. So in Matthew 15, when the Pharisees question Jesus about the disciples' behavior and say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. It's not actually a question. It's a criticism aimed at Jesus himself. They're your disciples. They don't wash their hands because you don't. You are being a bad example to them. How do we bear much fruit? We show that we are Jesus' disciples. How do we do that? Well, in two ways. Firstly, we actually have to be his disciples. 
So we must submit to his authority over scripture totally, whether we agree with it or not. The challenge for us is this. Do we submit to Jesus' authority in scripture? Or do, in fact, we look for someone else who presents us with a more palatable truth? Paul warned Timothy that this would happen in 2 Timothy 3. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. The reason we turn away from the truth of the gospel, from the true word of God in scripture, to a different interpretation is that the truth is hard to hear sometimes. We don't like what it has to say. So we find someone who writes a book or preaches sermons with an interpretation that says what our itching ears want to hear. Which says that the hard bits are all cultural. Or Jesus was exaggerating to make a point. Or the cross does away with all of that so we don't have to worry about it. But we will only find the truth in the word of God. That has to be our source of authority. But we must also open our whole lives to Jesus' scrutiny and accept his guidance and discipline. We all have a sort of vague understanding that nothing is hidden from God. But at the same time, we like to think that there are parts of our lives that we can keep him out of and he knows nothing about. So the question is, are you prepared to let Jesus into every area of your life? And will you listen to his guidance and accept his discipline when you do? Because that's true discipleship, which Jesus says is fruitfulness. But Jesus says we bear fruit by showing ourselves to be his disciples. We do that by imitating our rabbi. We study his mannerisms, his practice, his prejudices, or lack of, and we imitate them in our lives. Verses 9 to 14, I think are there to show us what Jesus thinks this will look like. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's own life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. Love and obedience. How did Jesus love Who did Jesus love? How did Jesus obey? These are the things we should be building our lives on. That's how we show ourselves to be his disciples. That's the fruit God is looking for in our lives. Do we love like Jesus loved? The truth is probably not most of the time. Do we really love with a love that is prepared to sacrifice our own lives for the sake of another? Do we really love, welcome, and accept everyone we meet? Are we managing to do that without compromising the truth? I think that's a line the church is struggling to negotiate at the moment. And what about obedience? 
My guess is most of us would say, actually, generally, we're pretty good at the big stuff. Adultery and murder, we're not too bad. But actually, it's the small stuff where we come unstuck. But Jesus said we're his friends if we do what he commands. What does he actually command? Well, we've already said that we're not very good at self-sacrificial love for each other. But what else? What about Mark 12? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, love your neighbor as yourself. We've already decided that's tricky. But loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love and obedience. I'm not feeling like a very good disciple. And fruitfulness seems pretty out of reach. And I don't know about you, but right now this passage doesn't seem very encouraging. And I'm not feeling very thriving. If bearing fruit means showing myself to be a disciple of Jesus, I'm not feeling very fruitful. And that actually makes me worry a little. Because I think it's time we address the elephant in the room that is verse 2. He, that's God, cuts off every branch in me, that's Jesus, that bears no fruit. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Can that really be true? If I bear no fruit, if, for example, I go through a dark period where I'm finding it hard to even trust Jesus, never mind show myself to be his disciple, will God really cut me off? There are three schools of thought that interpret this verse in different ways. One says, don't worry, Jesus isn't talking about Christians in this verse. He's only talking about people who appear to be Christians but aren't really. They have no real relationship with Jesus, so they'll be cut off. Look at verse 6. It says the same thing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. A second interpretation says, sorry, Jesus is saying that if you're not fruitful, you will be cut off. Jesus says, any branch in me. He's talking about Christians here. Look at verse 6, it says the same thing. But a third theory says, we need to ignore verse 6 for a minute. Yes, Jesus is talking about Christians, but he's not talking about cutting you off. The problem is with the phrase cut off. The word used in the Greek means cut off, throw out, take up, lift up. The paralyzed man is told to take up his mat. It's this word. Jesus tells us to take up our cross. It's this word. Now when you look at verse 6, to throw out... Or cut off makes sense because it seems to mirror what he's saying in verse 6. But remember the allegory. Jesus is describing what a gardener, or more accurately, a vine dresser, does to a vine to make it fruitful. Vine branches are lazy. They would much rather lie on the ground in the dust with the slugs and the snails 
than grow strong enough to support themselves. But branches on the ground don't get any sun. The leaves and the buds get covered in dust and mud, and so the branch can't be fruitful. Now, the vine dresser doesn't come along and just lop off any branch that's lying on the floor. These branches still have fruit-bearing potential. They just need a little help. So they lift them up. They rinse the mud off them and they tie them to other branches or support them with sticks. The branches aren't cut off. They are lifted up to where they can feel the sun and bear fruit. When we have become lazy and satisfied to just lie in the dust, or when the cares of this world has dragged us down so that fruitfulness is beyond us, God will lift us up into the sun, wash us off, and provide us with the support we need to be fruitful again. But what about verse 6? Well, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because I think it's making a very different point. Being fruitful isn't always easy. Sometimes it just feels easier to lie down in the dust and let everything happen around us. But Jesus warns it won't always be pain-free either. Because when the vine dresser has picked us up out of the dust, he doesn't then just leave us to get on with it. He doesn't leave us to the business of being fruitful on our own. Because left to their own devices, vine branches which aren't lying in the dust, would much rather produce more branches than grow fruit. Isn't that true of us? It's certainly true of most churches. We'd much rather, if we're honest, busy ourselves with making more branches, new Christians, than worry about the fruit we're producing in our own lives. Or not, as the case may be. But busyness does not equate to fruitfulness. What's more important to us individually and as a church? More people or deeper discipleship? Now, obviously, both are important. Don't hear me say that branches are not important. But if we're spending all our effort looking out trying to grow new branches without ever examining what's going on within our walls or within our hearts, we won't actually fulfill the things Jesus called us to. We won't bear much fruit, showing ourselves to be his disciples. And so the vine dresser goes along the branches pruning what shouldn't be there. Growth that is detrimental to the branch. Things in our lives that are not of him. Stray tendrils that sap energy and reduce our ability to be fruitful. All the busyness, all the stuff we do for God that is not actually achieving anything. Pruning hurts, I'm sure. Pruning is not, I'm sure, a pleasant experience for a branch. But it's needed if there's going to be fruit. The pruning Jesus says God will do is his discipline. It's training in righteousness. It's making us more like Jesus, better disciples, more fruitful. Suddenly, seemingly randomly, Jesus says the disciples are already clean because of the word he has spoken to them. But the word for clean is the same as the word for pruned. God will prune us. He will clean us by his word. 
When we come up against uncomfortable scripture and submit to his, its authority as disciples of the word, there's pruning happening. When we allow the word of God to scrutinize our lives and guide and discipline us, there's pruning happening. God wants each of us to be as fruitful as we can be, which will always be more fruitful than we currently are at any given moment. Whether it's because we need lifting up or cutting back, it's all done for the purpose of our own fruitfulness and for God's glory. Remember verse 8, this is for the Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. No one tastes grapes or wine and praises the branch. They don't even praise the vine. They praise the vine dresser, the one who cares and nurtures the vine to bring out its very best. Now, the eagle-eyed among you will have spotted, I still haven't explained verse 6. In fact, I haven't mentioned remaining in the vine at all, never mind anything about answered prayer, and it's quarter to seven. I am going to cover it, (laughs) but I promise to be brief-ish. Remain in me as I also remain in you. What does Jesus mean by remain in me? Well, in older translations, the word used is abide. Abide in me, says Jesus. Live in me. Make your home in me. Jesus has already promised the disciples to abide in us in chapter 14, verse 23. He says, my father will love them and we will come and make our home with them. What does home mean to you? Now, I acknowledge that it isn't always, but home should be our security, our safety, the place where the people you love the most are and where you are most loved, the place you can truly be yourself, the place you want to return to, the place you find rest and refreshment. Jesus says we can find all of that in him. He is the place you can truly be yourself. He is the place you can find rest and refreshment. He is the place you are loved most. Remain in him. Abide in him. Don't just visit. Don't just pop in when you need something. Make your home in him. But what happens if we don't? What is verse 6 actually saying? If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Now, as I said before, this verse has been used to say that Jesus is talking about judgment, but that just doesn't seem to fit with the flow of what Jesus is saying. I think we need to read verse 5 and 6 together. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you are the branch, you are like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus isn't promising judgment. He's promising that apart from him, if we don't remain in him, everything we try and do to bear fruit will be a waste of time. Branches of vines are useless for anything other than growing fruit. Once you've taken a branch off a vine or it's fallen off, there is no other use for it except to throw it on a fire. 
In fact, vine wood is so useless that Jews were not permitted to present it as part of their annual wood offering for the temple fires. Handing it over didn't cost them anything. It was a meaningless offering. Apart from Jesus, separate from him, we can do nothing. Now, obviously, we can still physically do things. But anything we do counts for nothing. It's useless, it's ineffectual, and it will never bear fruit, which is the purpose God has for us. The only way our efforts will be worth anything, the only way our lives will have meaning and be fruitful is if we remain in him and he in us. But how do we do that? And how does remaining in him guarantee us effective prayer lives? We abide in Jesus by abiding in the word. Look at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We've already seen that Jesus said it's his word that makes us clean. His word that prunes away that which doesn't belong and doesn't produce fruit. If we want to remain in Jesus, if we want to be fruitful and show ourselves to be his disciples, if we want effective prayer lives, we need to be people of the word. As Paul pleads with the Colossian church to do, do we let the message of Christ dwell among us richly? David, in the All Age Zone, the 9.30 this morning, was asking us to think about how much time we spend on our mobiles compared to how much time we spend in prayer. And it made me think, how much time do we spend reading the newspaper or on the internet or on Facebook compared to how much time we spend reading our Bibles? Are we really people of the word? Do our lives show the level of commitment to the words of Jesus that we profess? Do we actively encourage each other in that? Do we, as Paul continues, let the message of Christ dwell among us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts? The point Jesus is making is, if, is that if we are truly people who abide in the word, if the word guides and shapes our lives, if we are true disciples who study and imitate our rabbi in every way, our prayers, the things we hope and wish for, will be in line with God's will. And so our prayers will ask God to do the things he wants to do. None of us are there yet. None of us only ever pray in line with God's will. But by the grace of God, if we allow him to prune from our lives what is not of him, if we seek to imitate Jesus in every aspect of our lives, if we show ourselves to be his disciples, we will conform more and more to God's will. The road to fruitfulness will not be pain-free, and there will be times when we find ourselves just lying in the dust. But if we remain in him, our gracious and merciful vine dresser will only prune what does not produce fruit. He will lift us up into the sun when we need it, and he will provide us with everything we need to be fruitful. To his glory. Amen. <laughs>